Trevor. I'm Lauren. I'm Leo. And we're the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 97. You are joined by the fascinating, award-winning director and screenwriter Richard Stanley. In this conversation, he'll take you into the woods of the set of The Island of Dr. Moreau, where he lived after being infamously let go as director of the project, only to return as a creature actor and get to help destroy the whole set. (laughs) It's a fascinating story and the subject of an entire documentary. Learn all about black magic, the occult, and directing Nicolas Cage in Richard's brand new fantastic film, Color Out of Space, at time of release in theaters January 24th. Prepare for the horrifying trip of a lifetime. This is Richard Stanley, and you are experiencing the blasted heath some call the Boo Crew. It's in the static, it's in the moisture, it's in here, it's out there. What's out there is in here now. Everything's under control. Why are you so in denial? That thing from the meteorite changes everything around it. It's just a color. But it burns. Can you believe me now? I don't know what I believe anymore. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is an award-winning writer, director, producer, actor, and filmmaker whose creativity is absolutely fearless and inspirational. He's done everything from directing music videos for the likes of Fields of the Nephilim, PIL, Renegade Soundwave, and Terror Vision, to bringing us fascinating documentaries like 2001's Secret Glory that chronicled the search for the Holy Grail. 2013's The Other World about real-life magic or the white darkness detailing the practices of Haitian voodoo. His cyberpunk horror adventure Hardware, released in 1990, was uniquely his own and blew everyone's minds. He brought us even further under his spell with the hallucinatory experience Dust Devil. When this designer of worlds puts content out there for us, it is an event, pure and simple. For we know what we're about to see we've never seen before. Color Out of Space, starring Nicolas Cage and Jolie Richardson, is his latest feature-length film. Rest assured, it is a stunning event that you must be a part of. Here with us, it's an unbelievable honor to share some time with its architect, the legendary Richard Stanley. Yeah! Well, it's an honor and a privilege being here. So I wanted to talk about your earliest memory of falling in love with genre films. I guess that happened when I was about four years old. Um, I grew up in South Africa. There was no television at that point in time, so I wasn't um, exposed to any moving images. And my dad brought home a 16mm print of the original King Kong when I was four, which um, changed my life in all kinds of um, significant ways. It was clearly the the biggest thing that ever happened uh, 
from that point on, apart from um, <laughs> getting tearful every time I see Cog heading towards the Empire State Building. <laughs> I was um, particularly taken by the Carl Denham character and the desire to try to um, go to places where no one had ever been to before and to bring back images that no one had ever seen before. So um, that yeah, set me up early. Um, like a lot of creepy kids, I was um, reading Warren comics and um, famous monsters of Filmland from very young. Oh, that's uh, great. Isolated the tip of Africa. Um, the famous monsters fan club pages gave me the sense that there were other kids like me elsewhere in the world who were also making, doing similar things. And I got a hold of a Super 8 camera relatively early and started building tabletop miniatures and mucking around with stop motion animation. And then um, I guess once I was about 12 or 13, I started realizing you had to put people into it too and started trying to persuade other kids to dress up as cavemen to actually appear in these things. That's so <laughs> awesome. Wow. <laughs> Do you still have these? Are they There's somewhere? There's one surviving Super 8 movie still. Uh, actually, a couple of surviving ones. I was thinking that original uh, King Kong movie, referring to the Fay Ray version, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, the original King Kong uh, puppet, I guess is in the hands of Bob Burns, who is a big horror collector, you know, over the years and lives not too far away from here. I'm glad it's in safe hands. It is. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to meet uh, Forey Ackerman or see any of the Ackermansions in your... No, sadly, I never had the chance. It was something that I just um, admired from a, um, a great distance. Right. It certainly um, changed the world in all kinds of ways. Oh, yeah. And there's all, the cool thing is there's all these fascinating documentaries you can now get of Forey giving the tour of the Acker Mansion and seeing all these relics that, you know, are a part of sci-fi and horror history. That's It's just a real treasure. No, it's an incredible feat what he did for us. Color Out of Space marks your return to feature-length fictionalized storytelling for the first time since your much-storied experience attempting to bring your vision of the island of Dr. Moreau to life in 1996, which would have been your follow-up to Dust Devil, the events of which are told in amazing detail in 2014's Lost Soul documentary, which is essential viewing not only for anybody who's interested in the art of filmmaking, but just really anybody who wants to hear a good story. For those who are completely unfamiliar with the story of what happened, can you just give a brief overview of what the experience was like? Dr. Moreau came into my life early. I was a huge fan of the Wells novel. I started out as the reader of the book. Then I started to get arrogant and thought I could be the writer as well and tried to adapt it to a screenplay. Then managed to get the screenplay by hook or by crook into the hands of Marlon Brando to um, play Dr. Moreau. Then I was instantly um, shoved off the project in favor of Roman Polanski, the initial director, and fought a rearguard action to try and force Polanski off the project and regain control of it, which I somehow managed to do with the aid of, um, possibly with the aid of black magic, and um, got Brando on side. There was briefly a period of time when we were making the movie with Marlon Brando, Bruce Willis, and James Woods. Wow. Uh, then that all started to... Um, go pear-shaped to the point when Bruce got divorced and couldn't leave the country for six months and we were forced to replace him, which then um, led to a gradual war of attrition. Eventually, um, Val Kilmer came aboard to replace Bruce Willis. Brando um, almost dropped out thanks to family tragedy. When I was unable to produce Brando on day one and were hit by a hurricane, I was removed from the project myself as director. Most of the main shooting crew were as well. I was replaced by John Frankenheimer. But as um, the entire crew were um, basically um, fired and um, replaced, nobody knew who I was anymore. So I was able to um, regain employment in the project as uh, one of the monsters and came back as a, a beast person. 
and ended up as a one of one of the creatures on the island of Doctor Moreau, um, now trapped on the island in in, in monster form. Wow! And, um, <laughs> came, um, came through that part of the experience and helped um, destroy the big house and run amok with the the rest of the beast people. <laughs> um, um, a good retribution, yeah. In ways, <laughs> since then, um, the events on the island of Doctor Moreau, particularly that terrible sort of metafictional thing of ending up becoming a character in the script that you're initially writing. Right. Uh, <laughs> has itself become the basis of Lost Soul, the um, documentary by David Gregory, which um, I think should probably be prescribed viewing for um, film students who um, dare to um, try to make a career as directors or filmmakers, because it does show you just how um, spectacularly wrong things can go sometimes. And sure. How unlikely um, some of these yeah. twists and turns can be. Yeah, Lost Soul has itself now been um, optioned to become the basis for a um, a black comedy television show, which we may be seeing within the um, the next year or so, in which all of us will be played by actors. There'll be an actor playing Brando and an actor playing me, and it's um, that that's actually uh, strange enough happening. It seems <laughs> that's incredible. Wow. Receiving, <laughs> receiving checks on it. So and, cool. Um, all of the brahuha and the, the cloud around it now uh, seems to be leading inexorably towards um, rebooting the island itself. Sure. Something that um, has been discussed many times. And in fact, I'm sitting down at um, seven o'clock this evening with um, the producers, the original project to um, continue to debate the feasibility of um, making the island great again. Which um, is something that's yeah, that is exciting. exciting. Yeah, wow. seriously. Yeah, because I mean, your vision was way ahead of anything that was going on at the time, right? And now the ideas that you have have paved the way for movies like Jurassic Park and Guardians of the Galaxy and all that kind of stuff. It's superseded all that. You know, yeah, it was unfortunate. Um, I think that uh, if we'd come a few years later, if New Line were coming at it after. Um, the Lord of the Rings movies, they would have understood it better. At the time, um, we were still experimenting with um, mocap, and um, I don't think anyone fully understood um, what we were trying to do with the, um, the different beast folk or um, what all the weird designs and scraps of paper all over the place were yeah. were actually about. But, um, it does occur to me that um, the whole thing will work a lot better as either um, television or as a, um, a multi-part story, because um, designing so many creatures and such a an intact civilization doesn't make really sense for um, one single standalone feature. Right. No, that, yeah. that makes sense. So uh, one thing you had mentioned was black magic. And I know that the stories of occult and the realities of occult kind of go through uh, a lot of your work in that documentary that you did. And even this new movie, Color Out of Space, it's a part of the storyline. What relationship does that play in your life? Well, my mom was an anthropologist and um, wrote a very fat book on African witchcraft when I was growing up. Oh, wow. And as a result, I, I, she took me with her on her field trips when I was one, two, three, four years old. And um, she was consistently seeking out witch doctors and um, deeply weird people to interview them. So I got to meet a lot of these folk when I was um, a preschooler. And uh, when you're meeting yeah, African witch doctors uh, at that age, nobody's there to tell you that they're scary. And I found them to be um, extremely entertaining people who um, had any number of um, hysterical party tricks. Um, I remember one guy <laughs> named Zizwi Zonkwi who could take two snakes and put them in his mouth and the snake would come out each nostril. Oh, no was, way! Um, really, really, really funny when I was a four-year-old. Wow, um, I would want that at my birthday party. <laughs> yeah. Oh my um, God. It, it took a while 
work like got into the white school system to realize that these things were either not supposed to exist or were supposed to be somehow evil or um, or wrong. But um, nobody really told me that at the off. And um, as a result, um, it's, it's always been a, um, a milieu that I'm very happy and um, comfortable in. Uh, growing up over the years, I've realized to what an extent um, these folk are um, persecuted by um, mainstream society. Just how many people have been suppressed and yeah persecuted throughout the history of um, the West, obviously with um, the, um, the the Inquisition and the witch hunts in Europe that practically genocidally wiped out whole um, chunks of um, Western Europe before um, yeah back in the twelfth the thirteenth century before um, the witch hunts in East Anglia in the seventeenth century and then hopping the water into um, what we know about um, Salem and what happened in America. So I feel I do feel uh, a need to redress some of that stuff. I wish that there were more stories telling the tales of um, people like, say, John Dee, the Elizabethan sorcerer, because it's clear to me that many of these people were fascinating. Oh uh, yeah, but, um, by no means um, evil or dark, but um, often were um, the folk who came up with the basis of our modern day science. And any number of things from chemistry through to the motion picture apparatus seem to have been originally invented as um, the apparatus of various historic sorcerers. And it just feels like a chunk of um, our human culture that needs to be redressed now that we're in a period when the, um, the Holy Roman Church can't actually burn you at the stake for talking about it. Perfect <laughs> <laughs> right. right. timing for that, yeah. <laughs> so, Color Out of Space. Based on an original story by H.P. Lovecraft, originally published in like the early 20s, I believe, 1927, possibly. Uh, for all that people know, it was one of Lovecraft's personal favorites. So it's about a horror from beyond that is almost completely indescribable. Talk about your discovery of that story in particular and why that was one that you felt compelled to bring to life. Well, I was fortunate to have a very creepy mother, so um, <laughs> my mom read me Lovecraft when I was very, very young, starting with the um, the more lightweight Dunsanian fiction. I think I got Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath when I was about seven or eight. <laughs> wow. But, um, wow. Then um, transitioned from that steadily into the stronger stuff, so by the time I was 13, I'd obviously read through Call of Cthulhu and Color Out of Space. And yeah, Color Out of Space, it was um, allegedly Lovecraft's favorite of his own works. But also, it's possibly the most accessible in terms of adapting it to screen, especially in a, um, a low to medium budget adaptation, because, just because it's set on in a single farm, in a farmhouse in New England, as opposed to, say, um, at the Mountains of Madness, which is set in Antarctica, or um, The Call of Cthulhu, which kind of partially wants to be set in, like, the Mariana Trench or something. Right, right. <laughs> um, it's accessible simply because, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's set on the, uh, the, the North American mainland. Uh, features a single family. I love, I've read the, the original short story and I love the new creativity you sort of frame it with. Talk about the elements of that story that you wanted to enhance with your, your script. You've brought out a real heart to the story. Yeah, there's some, there were some definite challenges and one of the big challenges of Lovecraft is um, he doesn't have characters as such. He was such a, a misanthrope and a... Um, I think had so little faith in the human race or, or in himself that um, he never really bothers giving us um, three-dimensional characters, dialogue, or um, figures that we can actually sympathize with. He's more interested simply in creating a sense of mankind's um, hopelessness or our, our sheer smallness in the face of the, um, of the cosmic threat. 
Uh, along with Lovecraft's misanthropy comes some other um, baggage from the 1920s. There's certainly, in, with not within the color out of space story, but within Lovecraft's oeuvre as such, there you can detect a misogynistic or a racist element. And I felt that um, those things needed to be dragged out into the open and addressed, uh, that we needed to um, create three-dimensional um, figures um, who would, through which we could kind of interrogate some of Lovecraft's hang-ups. Talk a bit about getting into the, I mean, again, with the source material, there's a real vagueness in the description of certain things that are going on, right? With the events that took place with the media and everything. Did you see kind of a creative freedom there in which to describe and show what those things were? Well, certainly a, a, a very unsettling um, creepiness, a sense of things never quite making complete sense, which we wanted to get at. But also, um, personally, I'm not really a believer in um, the notion that humanity is being visited by extraterrestrials and actual technological craft. But I do think that um, there's something behind some of the different contactee experiences. And I wanted to um, address the idea of ultra-dimensional or ultra-terrestrial interactions of human beings and there's a lot of stuff that happens in this world. I mean, I guess an example would be, say, the Skinwalker Ranch stories or the um, the stories about um, the Dyatlov Pass incident, which um, where there's no actual technological element, but we get very freaky ideas like um, time distortion and um, the way that um, sound and light behave differently and um, travel differently um, the way the sort of biological contamination the characters suffer so I kind of wanted to use as many of the um, what you might think of as, as UFO or alien invasion tropes without actually having a spaceship ever actually show up right yeah, right. <laughs> true. but you managed to create what is the kind of the core of the story the color and Give us the effect of something that we haven't experienced before, which is what the color technically is. It's it's supposed to be something that's so vibrant, something outside the spectrum of human understanding. How fun was it to play with digital effects and wash this film? It's almost like dripping, soaked. The film soaked in this 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 look. Well, it was certainly a blast to finally be able to get my hand into the VFX cookie jar. Yeah. After nice. um, all those years after Moreau, uh, it's the, <laughs> the first time I've really had access to um, to those tools. And that definitely um, widened the scope of what we're going after. Did it uh, take a, w- a while to develop what that would look would be? Yeah, it was something we fought out, fought over constantly the entire way and kept, um, we gave a, the Spanish VFX crew a very hard time and were constantly um changing and reworking the thing by the end of the movie I, the color was um showing up in my dreams <laughs> um, constantly reminding me that it wanted to be beautiful and good to look at and mesmeric it wanted people to love it and to and that it, it i remember it saying I, I, I want to be beautiful the way i am now and when it takes over nick i want it to be the way i'm taking over you now and i was looking at my hands in the dream and seeing this thing bleeding out of my flesh and burning my skin away Um, so um it took it took a bit of going i mean we knew that the color was going to be um some ultra dimensional um gas with fingers was i think the um the best way we could um we could describe it it really becomes an assault on the viewer's senses especially you know getting near to the the climax of the film to the point where 
it's everything you're seeing when you look off screen too. It's blinding you with this, with this feeling and you take it with you. You don't just leave it on the screen. And that's, that's that experience. I think we're all talking about where it's unlike anything we've experienced before. You're just assaulted. (laughs) It it, it is a um, a genuinely psychedelic movie that way around uh, does um, directly um, attack the, um, the viewer's consciousness. The the ways it does that is obviously um, with the color palette, Ultraviolet and infrared are the um, outer limits of um, the, the the human visual right. spectrum, and um, are as close as we can see to um, whatever lies beyond um, ultraviolet, which um, yeah, we simply can't comprehend. And infrasound and ultrasound or soundtrack do the same thing. So the the color soundtrack, which starts quite soft and traditional, but really is just playing a variant of the same theme. The, the whole way through the movie gradually gets more and more intense and does start to um, dip into the the extremely high-pitched um, ultrasound and the very, very deep bass of the infrasound. And I think that becomes something which really adds to the um, the attack on the, on the audience. I only wish that we could have used smell as well, that we could have also gotten into the olfactory spectrum. I'd love to oh, have that'd a be so That would be amazing. That would be so cool. <laughs> you, you know, I was thinking about the uh, third act in the movie. Uh, were you inspired at all by uh, Rob Bottin's work? Um, inevitably. I mean, um, the thing is possibly the greatest Lovecraft movie not yeah. to come from a Lovecraft story. Right. Um, <laughs> but, um, that was beautiful. I mean, it, it was so grotesque to, to look at. And I'm like, what am I looking at? You know, but I was thinking, wow, this reminds me of something Rob Bottin would do, you know, back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Adored the thing. I first saw it in, um, in a, 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 a tribal area in, in Africa. In fact, in a place called Umtata, in a cinema called the Umtata Rama, with a, um, a tri- fully tribal audience. And, wow, uh, that was just awesome! Wow, what did they uh, think of the uh, thing? I Mike. No idea. <laughs> Faded Antarctica of the husky and stuff. Like wow. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think yeah, the thing uh, Carpenter's the thing, and maybe Andrei Zalowski's Possession might be two of my favorite um, Lovecraft movies that aren't from a um, an original story. Yeah, I love the way that, that you tease us with flashes of the images of of that gore and effects that we're about to see, right. and then at one point it all bets are off, and right. we're just again it becomes a part of this assault. You also play a lot with sound in this movie. There's the uh, Tommy Chong's character we hear in this tape deck warble. Oh man. And when they discover him and everything yeah, that and that's creepy. yeah or the sounds of the the, the creature yeah. in the attic. We'll leave it at that. It was hard to watch. It's like uncomfortable. You know, yeah, Lauren and I were like this is like it's really sad to hear that it won't stop. The sound won't stop. Right. Turn it off, you know. Right. Did you did you were you doing was that intentional? Um, it certainly was. Oh, yeah. Man. Um, um I mean I uh, Color also um, contains a few Easter eggs from the larger Lovecraftian universe. I hope that one day we'll do another one. There's certainly a few Dunwich horror references in the uh, the course of the movie. But um, the Tommy Chong character making the audio recordings in a way harks back to um, a story called The Whisperer in Darkness, which is the one where the farmer at the head of the river is um, making the um, recordings of the aliens which are um, moving around under his house or, or in the hill. Very, very similar things to that actually happened in um, near the place where I live. Oh, no um, way. In the Pyrenees in the south of France, there was a... Um, the Tommy Chong character's look is based very carefully on a, um, a, a real um, hippie hermit character who was living there at the end of the 20th century and who in the... Um, 
the early 90s made a series of analog recordings of what he claimed were aliens moving around underneath his house, which he played on French national television, which then um, provoked a, a mass hysteria outbreak in the area, oh, wow. um, leading to the entire area eventually being um, locked off by the French army, um, who declared a kind of state of martial law there in 2012 at the um, time when the Mayan calendar ran out. A little bit of that bleeds into color, and that business of the um, the creepy analog tape recording is something that I'm, I'm really familiar with from personal experience. Oh my oh gosh, it's <laughs> <laughs> amazing! Yeah. Were there any um, obstacles while filming that you didn't anticipate that you had to get a handle on? Um, on the whole, we were we were treated very well by the location, and I had the feeling that I'd used up all of my bad luck coupons on Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, this one kind of um, went like clockwork. We um, made every single day. We um, it, we we turned it in. Um, I think slightly under budget and a, a, a day ahead of schedule. Oh, wow. that's incredible! That's awesome. Yeah, it was a, a pretty much a dream experience. No humans or alpacas were harmed. Alpacas? Yes. I'd never is, seen an alpaca before. <laughs> this is the first major um, sci-fi horror alpaca movie, <laughs> uh, which was a, a deliberate move because I also felt I've never seen one milk before. <laughs> yeah, it nope. certainly has the, the, the first, first ever um, alpaca milking scene. <laughs> uh, the first, um, I think, socio-politically charged alpaca milking scene. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you shoot this thing? Because it opens up and you just you're also assaulted with the beauty of nature. I yes. mean, it's beautiful shots. And then we go to a Wiccan doing a ritual by the river right there. And it's just it's beautiful. We had about six weeks to prep it in. And um, we had, because of um, Mr. Cage's schedule, we had to shoot at the end of January which meant that pretty much all of the Northern Hemisphere was under snow at the time. It was oh. um, right, right in the dead heart of midwinter. So um, we were forced to find any whatever place we could where, where it still looked like it was late summer or autumn and also somewhere where we could get alpacas. Which, um, <laughs> Very important. Yeah, I needed quite a, a number of alpacas in terms that I felt was essential to the film's success, although the film's meant to be set in a fictional version of um, Massachusetts. We ended up shooting in um, a place called Sintra in Portugal. Oh, wow. Which um, I've never heard of before and never been to before. And we ended up only there only because of the, um, the climate and the availability of these animals. And um, Sintra turned out to be deeply mysterious and um, a really genuinely creepy part of the world, which... Um, I'm, I'm grateful to have um, yeah, actually made its acquaintance. It's a sort of a goth enclave in um, outside of Lisbon. Very ancient forest. Um, they did human sacrifice there to some sort of aquatic deity back in pre-Roman times. Wow. At a place called Boca del Inferno, the mouth of hell in, um, in Sintra. But over the years, previous tenants of this um, densely wooded and rather creepy part of the world have included... Um, Lord Byron, um, Alistair Crowley, more recently, um, J.K. Rowling was there. There's a, a, a little-known figure named William Beckford who wrote an arabesque fantasy named called Vartek, lived there for a number of years. This, I mentioned Beckford because he was one of the folk who inspired Lovecraft and was the, the first person to use the word ghoul, G-H-O-U-L, in the what? English language. Oh, wow. <laughs> from Arabic. So Sintra had a long, creepy history. And um, the forest was, yeah, 
they're very charged and it, uh, much of the mist and things you see in the movie is um, completely real and oh, um, I felt it looked after us um, very very well and kind of enjoyed having us there and I felt that the principal farmhouse that we used also um, enjoyed the experience <laughs> have you had any paranormal experiences in your life where you've seen a ghost or anything like that yes but um, it's a tricky thing to um, talk about. I've heard a lot of things. I tried staying on the fence for um, a number of years. Like most folk, I needed um, overwhelming um, evidence before yes. um, I could um, cave into accepting the possibility that I honestly didn't know what was really happening. I worked for 14 Times magazine for a number of years, writing stories for them, and um, was a great believer in Charles Hoyfort's maxim that... Um, Extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. When something like uh, as big as um, the possibility of um, the survival of death or um, life on other planets um, comes up, these um, things do need to be um, checked and rechecked really, really carefully. I don't um, really um, put any credence on anything that um, happens to me or which I see or hear on my own, because I accept that that could be... Um, a temporary lapse of sanity or an acid flashback or um, <laughs> some kind of misperception that usually helps to have um, multiple witnesses and um, some kind of um, some kind of solid documentation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm cautious because of the, the woo-woo element. But, um, yeah, over the years, I've certainly um, heard a few strange things. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I had um, finally a um, an episode in um, 2007 that um, pushed me across uh, off the fence where I was no longer able to adequately explain away what was going on, which um, involved the um, the castle um, where I've been living in um, the Pyrenees. I moved there right after this because um, I finally f figured, okay, um, I give up. I accept that um, there's something going on here that I can't possibly explain, but um, now I want to understand what it is and um, the only way to um, study it and find out how it worked was to actually physically move there and to um, go full-time. So that's when I gave up my flat in London and relocated to the Pyrenees. The um, backstory behind that's in a, um, a documentary called The Other World. That everyone has to watch yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is also the only movie I think I've ever seen with the soundtrack featuring Mayhem and Burzum. Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up on that. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't, it also, it's not intrusive sounding, right? It's it just, it's woven into the fabric, which is also amazing. Well, it's the opportunity to bring those guys together with the source material of H.P. Lovecraft was um, irresistible. Right? Yeah. It's perfect. And then Colin Stetson, who scored Hereditary, has also helped out bands like Arcade Fire and Bon Iver. He just, again, it's like this digital bath that that is part of that sonic assault and this visual assault how was it working with with colin on this um awesome and um, i think colin was yeah in many ways the perfect choice the moment we first started talking by skype i noticed that he was working out of a an extremely old farmhouse in vermont and had converted the um kind of triangular attic at the house into a into his studio sound space i thought okay this is going to be fine I immediately told him to go back and reread um, The Whisper in Darkness, the the one Lovecraft story set in Vermont, which is the one that features those analog tape recordings. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we started digging into it. Very cool. Wow. Very cool. And then, of course, the incredible cast and 
Watching Nicolas Cage is always a fascinating experience, and on this, it is a real roller coaster ride. You bring him up to a level, and then we just drop, and it's exhilarating. And his performances are so nuanced. How was it working with Nick? Um, I thought Nick was tremendous and um, very brave and um, very, very controlled and brings an incredible amount of energy to it. He read the script, obviously, a ways in advance and um, highlighted different areas where he thought he could um, improvise or um, go off into um, one of his uh, famous frenzies. These things were all worked out well in advance. So um, we knew when and where they were coming and were able to um, prepare for it. Because <laughs> the audience can't prepare for that. That's the exciting part, right? You don't know yeah. when you watch him. He's he's feels like he's in control, man. He's it's, very much in control. Yeah. yeah. Once you lock into something like that, and you 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 figure out, okay, we're um, we've got it. It's going to be take two. Um, Nick will then, from every angle that you go back at it, will repeat that um, that, that that frenzy with exactly the same timing and uh, and inflection. It's not. It's very much very much controlled. So he's a, a great guy to work with like that. And um, you, one certainly will get one's coverage. That un- that un- unraveling that frenzy of his character. What uh, specific direction did you give him for that, or, or did you tell him you know any any specific motivation, something to channel some character, or you know or or uh, emotional yeah, um One of the ways that I like to get into things, um, particularly when you're dealing with um, a situation that's so dark like this, and where um, in Lovecraft, obviously, people usually either die or go insane. There's no real option of a, of a happy ending. As, um, I try to emotionally connect it to um, something I truly care about, if, uh, especially trying to create um, characters who are likable in this um, rather bleak Lovecraftian context. So... Um, with many of the people in the film, we're basing it on our our, our, our dead loved ones or um, nearest and dearest, like um, the little boy in the family is kind of a, a version of my younger self who's um, drawing the crayon drawings of the Lovecraftian creatures. The cancerous mother is a version of my own mum who um, had a very um, lingering 10-year death from lymphoma, during which I read to her, uh, it went full circle and ended up reading Dream Quest for Unknown K-Death to her on her deathbed. And, uh, she, her consciousness eventually disintegrated to the point where um, we had to um, essentially euthanize her, which is a debate that also is woven through color. And right. Nick um, basically um, focused on his issues of his own father. So increasingly in the course of the movie, Nick is um, in some ways um, reflecting on his own dad, which is the um, the same characterization that haunts um, Vampire's Kiss. It's a little bit, uh, it's a version of, yeah, August Capella of um, Augie, his dad, who he gradually morph, morphs into. Yeah, I think it's that, again, that heart that we all pick up on when we're watching and it becomes just, yeah, it's, you feel for what this family's going through. And you also, it, it puts their decisions into context too. And what they end up deciding to do is, uh, no, makes it really interesting. Lovecraft movies are so difficult to realize. You can ask Guillermo del Toro, he, he's been trying to make uh at the Mountains of Madness back in, you know, I don't know, when, when was that, 10 years ago or so mm-hmm. with um, Tom Cruise and all that. And, and, you know, he found that it was just so difficult. And maybe the world's not ready for giant penguins. I don't know. But uh, in terms of you bringing this story to life, did you find that a, a challenge uh, to write this story in, in, a, in a modern day setting? I found that a sort of a necessity. I mean, back home, I've got myself my plush Cthulhu and I'm, I'm very <laughs> partial to um, Lovecraftian role-playing games and things. But I knew that... Um, 
what we presented on film would have to not be um, cuddly at all. We wanted to try and reinvent it in a way that would make um, Lovecraft's mythos into a clear and present danger to um, a modern audience and to um, to generations to come. So I knew we had to move it out of the um, the 19th century or the 1920s and moving it into the present and, uh, was a, a, a kind of one of the requirements of um, bringing this thing to, um, to life. Like any... Um, solid adaptation if one's going after a classic like um, Dracula or Frankenstein or any of the classics you basically want to try to hit all of the main plot points you don't want fans to feel like you've cheated them by completely changing the tale but um, if you're going to do it successfully you want to hit them in a way that um, not only feels natural but also um, comes out of the left of field and there were a lot of things from the original tale like the decision to um, when your um, relatives are starting to mutate, to um, to lock them in the attic and things, which are such classic Lovecraft, but yes. also <laughs> decisions that not many people in the 21st century would actually make. So to try and make those play realistically, and, um, the entire sort of set piece at the towards the end when. Um, Nick um, lets the cop and the scientist into his house and has this dialogue with them in the in the lounge is um, pretty much verbatim from um, the original Color Out of Space. So I was very pleased to be able to yeah to hit those main moments, but to um, kind of creep up on them in a, a relatively roundabout way. You know, this movie is absolutely beautiful, and I'm glad that I saw nothing about it. I recommend people just going in cold and seeing this movie because it's, it's it's if you love Lovecraft horror sci-fi this is the real treat man very well directed very well acted and his cinematography is amazing it's definitely yeah. something that Stunning. you have not seen before i'll yeah. tell you that yeah it's a real experience you don't watch this movie you experience it richard thank you so much for being here my man yeah. seriously thank you pleasure, thank you absolute thank honor you. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 97. Special thanks to our guest, Richard Stanley. At time of release, see his new film, Color Out of Space, in theaters everywhere, January 24th. Music for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting. Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.